Smartcast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to... (laughs) What up? And welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley, hello. Today we are discussing one of Wesley's favorite movies. Classic. From 2007. Oil. No. 150 pages of oil. The rest, he just used it as a writing exercise. There will be blood. There will be blood. Dude, 2007, the best year for movies in the last 50 years, hands down. What else came out in 2007? Nothing else has come close. No Country for Old Men, best picture winner. There will be blood. Sunshine. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Into the Wild. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Ben Affleck's Gone Baby Gone. Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, 310 to Yuma by James Mangold, Savages with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Laura Linney, American Gangster, one of Dad's favorites, and Michael Clayton. Very solid year. And which was your favorite? No Country for Old Men. It's difficult because when Paul Thomas Anderson announced, or it was announced, that he was going to be directing a movie, uh, my favorite director at the time, featuring my favorite actor at the time, I was elated. I was so excited. There Will Be Blood was the best thing ever. I picked up Upton Sinclair's Oil and I read it on the spot, even though he only adapted the first 150 pages and then kind of wung it, winged it, wang it by the, after that. And the result was very, very good. And then No Country for Old Men came along. And I had to concede that... In the face of No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood just didn't stack up. It couldn't have been Best Picture. I knew it when it happened. You and I saw No Country for Old Men together, and immediately I knew. How do you remember these things? I have associations, but none of them always make sense. But what's your association for us having seen No Country for Old Men? We went to the theater together, and I came out of the theater totally jazzed. I don't know if you remember, and I was like, that movie was something, and we talked about it all the way to the restaurant. I think we walked to a restaurant after that. It wasn't Blair's. It was like some weird little bistro thing. Were we in East LA? We were somewhere in, I think, yeah. Well, we would, because the only place you can walk to food from the theater is like Los Feliz Village, but you wouldn't see a movie in that dinky theater. Wherever it was, we saw it, and it wasn't a huge megaplex or whatever. And there are a few. the, the, The Vista. And there are a few movies that after I see them, I know immediately that there's something special and they resonate really, really strongly and No Country for Old Men happened to be one of those movies. That's how I felt about American Beauty. Yeah? Anyway, great year. Tipping the review a little bit. No, I mean, I think everyone by now knows that There Will Be Blood is a spectacular film. Yeah. Um, maybe the last spectacular film that Paul Thomas Anderson generated. The Master for me was disappointing. Despite the fact that I saw the trailer, trailer was great. And I said, before seeing the movie, absolutely 100% guarantee next year Joaquin Phoenix will get a Best Actor nomination. And he did. Uh, He didn't win. But then strangely, The Master used almost none of the footage from an extremely promising trailer. And then he did the Stoner movie. Then Then he did Inherent Vice, also forgettable. And then since he has done... 
Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread. But I think there was another one in between. Phantom Thread was beautiful. Phantom Thread was beautiful and forgettable. Daniel Day-Lewis's performance was not forgettable. I kind of didn't have anything to latch on to. I wonder if my love for movies, certain movies, has a particular toehold or a foothold or whatever that I can point to and say that this was why. I think across the board, There Will Be Blood, he didn't really change a lot tonally. He spoke to people and tried to be more civil and slightly softer, but I think he was pretty much the same character throughout, at least under the surface, right? In There Will Be Blood? I don't know that there was a tremendous arc for Daniel Plainview. Oh, I see. But So you can kind of point to that seething undercurrent of of disdain and and hate uh, for that whole movie. Phantom Thread was much harder to figure out. And it was more nuanced, and so I can't latch onto it and say that it was a great performance. Hmm. I love watching him, loved watching him, but in the face of There Will Be Blood for that collaboration, Phantom Thread just didn't live up for me. I mean, it was, it's just different. It's does, a little Yeah, apples does it and stand oranges. as iconic as There Will Be Blood does? Upon rewatching There Will Be Blood, I'd have to say no, but... I think that there was something really refined and finessed about his performance. And then I'm always struck by when I see Daniel Day-Lewis as himself, if there is such a thing, how different he is from his characters. Yeah, very soft-spoken. Yeah. You would almost think that he that he holds that in such reserve you don't... Where does he channel those other things from? Right. right? Which is the act? Right. So we watched the uh, Oscar acceptance speech because I told Kelly after watching There Will Be Blood again... There were a few things in life that I would have bet the farm on. One was that Parasite was going to win Best Foreign Film. I didn't think it was going to win, win Best Picture. Two, that Martin Scorsese was going to win Best Director as a legacy kind of homage after uh, for The Departed. And three, that Daniel Day-Lewis was going to win Best Actor for There Will Be Blood. In a f- runaway field of superb movies for that year, he still stood out beyond a shadow of a doubt. That rhymes. <laughs> Dude, you're like... What do they call those? Slam poet? <laughs> but um, when I saw Phantom Thread, I was like, oh, that's Daniel Day-Lewis. And then I saw Daniel Day-Lewis's acceptance speech for Phantom Thread. And I was like, no, that's Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, I thought that the soft, refined character that he played in Phantom Thread was actually kind of who he was. But it's not. He's like a chameleon. So what is the hallmark of a good actor? I mean, I think we all know what Meryl Streep sounds and acts like, and we can see some of that bleed through in some of her less extreme performances, right? But you're right. I don't have a sense. If, if Daniel Day-Lewis walked into a room and he talked funny, I would be suspicious. Like, I wouldn't know for sure if it was really him. Kind of hard to pin down. Yeah. I mean, he seems like a very gentle man. And then in There Will Be Blood, there was one scene where I was like, it's the one where he is telling Paul that if Paul was lying to them, mm-hmm. that he was going to like come get him, basically. Come get him and take back more than his money. Yeah. And when he says it, I was, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I was terrified. Yeah. He's pretty menacing from the outset, right? And he can be magnanimous and he can be pleasant when he's with other people. But you never really got to. It was like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And Stephen King's qualm was that... Jack Nicholson is never too far from crazy. He starts crazy. Yeah, and, and Dan Day-Lewis, while he doesn't start crazy, you definitely see it in his face. And and that's a testament, I think, to his ability because he doesn't have, like, resting bitch face or anything. Right? Right. 
He just he's a normal, pleasant enough looking guy, but consistently you you come under the intense scrutiny of of Daniel Plainview, and it's pretty apparent that he's a formidable person. Right. Yeah, well, to close the loop on P.T. Anderson's oeuvre, um, is There Will Be Blood your favorite P.T. Anderson movie? No. P.T. Anderson and, and Daniel Day-Lewis together is a dream combination for me. But still, and I'm examining why, because as you see more movies and as you look back on the movies that were important, especially when you're hosting a pod, co-hosting a podcast and you, you're forced to decide which is your favorite movie, and you look back on movies, and I have a fondness for P.T. Anderson's Magnolia, which, in regarding in retrospect, is so closely tied to my identity and place and time for its release. I was in Indiana in the middle of winter, all lonely and sad, and that movie hit me like a ton of bricks. Like a mo- It was unlike any movie I'd ever seen before. Uh, not to say that there weren't movies like it before or it's been compared to, to arguably better movies, but it resonated so profoundly with me at the time that it stood out as one of my favorite movies. Very important to me uh, in that I saw it in the theaters seven times, uh, trudging through the snow and across town to see it. One Bleak Winter, Once Upon a Time. And then playing Amy Mann on repeat. I legitimately thought that my life would be more ordered and would make more sense when that movie was finally released on video. When I get my DVD copy of Magnolia, my life will be better. (laughs) And so thankfully I can regard... He says with all sincerity. And so thankfully I can regard movies a little bit more critically now. Can't profess my love... Uh, in, in the face of obvious flaws and things. Still, I can talk about how technically a movie moves me and how just in spite of any of its flaws, it, I connect with it emotionally. Despite your very personal connection to Magnolia and my love for that film, I have to say that my favorite of P.T. Anderson's films is Boogie Nights. And also a great choice. And also, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance, like, two-minute cameo performance in uh, Heart 8 or Sydney is like is almost enough to make that film like my it's my second just him as the gambler in Heart 8 mm-hmm. okay he steals like the entire movie in two minutes yeah and then he and then he it was enough so that he appeared in almost every P.T. Anderson movie except There Will Be Blood and he was originally in contention for the role of H.M. Tilford, the oil man who, uh, who offers to buy out Daniel Plainview's properties or his wells. But P.T. Anderson felt that putting uh, Hoffman in that role might be a little bit too close to some of his other movies and he wanted to break away. And this was, There Will Be Blood was P.T. Anderson's Inglorious Bastards for Quentin Tarantino. Right, He made a period movie that was entirely unlike any of the contemporary movies he had made in the past. Hmm. And I think to great effect, but he wanted to move away from what he had done before. And unfortunately, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman fell by the wayside for this one. Mm-hmm. But he would have been good in this movie, right? He would have been yeah, good yeah, at yeah, H- he, H.M. Tilford. He has a classic sort of uh, a look that would have translated well for early 20th century. Sure. He had that high society thing. I mean, he did it in... The Clown Movie with Robin Williams. The Clown Movie? What's the Clown Movie? Death to Smoochie? No, the one where Robin Williams is a clown doctor. Oh, Patch Adams. He did it in Talented Mr. Ripley. Yep. Maybe we should talk about There Will Be Blood. Okay, so There Will Be Blood did punch me emotionally and did last night when I watched it again. But I think it can be broken down technically. Sure. Let's start with 
Uh, obviously, we started with the direction. Let's start with music. Mm. Music. As I understand it, this is the first score, full feature length score for Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. Mm-hmm. Were you aware? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, um, I wasn't aware the first time I saw it. And when I first saw it, uh, you can't attribute any, any of its success to him, but when I first saw it, I wasn't sure how much I liked it. And it imparts a lot of dread. And in scenes where they're surveying the land for the feasibility of a pipeline, even before they were able to talk to Bandy, and clap, 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 clap. And, it, you know, it's just, and this driving beat um, adds a lot of menace and drama to a scene that otherwise might have been way too long and may have existed solely as a vehicle for the music. But I'm not sure 100% how well it worked. It was, it was no electronica score in Uncut Gems, but revisiting it and after the sort of adoration and glow has died down, I'm not sure 100% if the score was fitting throughout. What do you think? I'm developing a theory that I can tell if I'm going to like a movie on its first shot. Pretty good first shot, though. Great first shot and great cue. Yeah. In context, but because we get the menacing foothills and it sort of leads to a, I don't know, what, what, what is it? Maybe a Kubrickian sense of sort of us filling in this void with our own fears and things yeah yeah look it works on two levels because one it's setting the tone for the entire film right that undercurrent of dread and hate and seethingness and then on the second level it's establishing plain views remoteness the fact that he's going to fall into a pit in the middle of nowhere and have to drag himself out and across the desert yes through by his own design right he was he didn't change as a person he didn't love people more and grew into he was building up his hatred a little by little over the years he was out by himself doing dangerous things in the desert scrabbling and digging for 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 ore all by himself and yeah it spoke to his isolation to his desolation um both physically and, I guess, you know, emotionally. Right. So I think that the score for that matter works. I don't say that it was mismatched, but there's a lot of driving where you wonder, where you anticipate things are coming, important things are happening, a, a lot of driving in the score that maybe doesn't pay off. And I wonder if ramping up that sort of non-event, those non-event scenes is something of a cheat. I mean, most of the time when something sticks out, and you come out of the movie and kind of aware of it, you know, it doesn't work. But I feel like even though it's, um, it makes itself known, it still really works. It, it does work. It's effective. It's effective. And it's not, it doesn't pull, it didn't pull me out as much as other scores, as some other bad scores did. Um, just, it, it's like an asterisk. Does this work? Not sure. hundred percent. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. But uh, I'll tell you what does work. Tell Pretty me. obvious, right? Well, the the acting, I think, is, is a given. Now, Paul Dano, I don't know, is a veteran. Certainly, he wasn't at the time. Um, he was actually cast as Paul 
the, the, the first brother that we encounter. And it was only after P.T. Anderson decided to recast the role of Eli that they said, well, let's just make him twin and we'll keep Paul Dano around. If one didn't read Oil, I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that Paul and Eli are, are actually the same person. And that's definitely something that we are led to believe, right? It wasn't without intention. Now, it may have just come through circumstance that a single actor played both roles, but I think it also adds to the sort of confusion and uh, suspicion of people's intentions, motivations, what's under the surface, what's really happening here. Yeah, I mean, if Eli is schizophrenic, it makes him all the more terrifying. <laughs> But then, of course, he alludes to his his father about how he let Paul was was smarter than he was and those that sort of thing. So I think we right, we but his father never acknowledges Paul. It's true, but I think it would be too much of a stretch. It was already a very convenient leaving the audience wondering thing that was effective to a point. But then we at least have to concede that he was the same person. I Not have to say to, that Eli wasn't whacked out of his head. I have to think that. Um, that the actor, that Paul Dano and P.T. Anderson leaned into this idea that they could be the same person because Paul Dano really didn't try to differentiate his performance. I mean, when he introduces himself as Eli, he's acting like Paul. Yeah, well, they're twin and, and they're brothers from the same homestead. I think it was a fortuitous byproduct, but it wasn't much beyond that. I would like to hope so because you, you can't really get, that might be a little bit too deep. So in talking about the acting, um, Daniel Day-Lewis obviously stands out in this role. And I think he steals a lot of the scenes, but I don't think that he was alone. He has to play against someone strong as Eli. And I think Paul Dano, who wasn't really intended for that role to sustain throughout, did an admirable job. He was very young and a little bit squeaky, but that was who he was and sort of deceptively childish. Lamb of God type. What are you trying to say? That he well, was that he he appears to be he's a wolf in lamb's clothing. Who do you put up against Daniel Day Lewis? Paul Dano was a risky choice. He I think he did 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 well. But you're also putting up actors like this kid Dylan Frazier who wasn't an actor. He was a, he was a kid in a local school that someone spotted in Marfa, uh, Texas, where they were filming, and then he spent the entirety of this movie acting against Daniel Day-Lewis. Kid was great. Yeah, kid was great. Just a school kid. And how do you make those decisions to put just a school kid and a relatively well, untested actor? You don't have a lot of options with kids. I mean, they're almost always going to be unproven. I don't know if that's the case. I'm working on a kid's show right now where those kids are so meticulously chosen and some of them have been groomed their entire lives. Yeah, but this is YouTube generation. We're talking 2007. All right, granted. You act like it's in the distant past. It's like 13 years ago. It feels like distant past. Can I give you my context for There Will Be Blood? Go. So you watched Magnolia depressed in the winter. I watched There Will Be Blood. So I um, I think I pulled an all-nighter. Yeah. So I pulled an all-nighter preparing my master's thesis, turned it in at like 10 in the morning, promptly went back to my studio apartment and put on There Will Be Blood. I, I put it on, ironically, for a sense of comfort. Yeah, I did that after a nasty breakup that same year 
with the assassination of Jesse James. Really? I bought it on DVD, watched it three times in a row. Not an upper that <laughs> back movie. Back to back to back? Back to back to back in, the, in, in your old room at mom's house, curtains drawn. One day, three times, and that's not a short movie. It's weird what we turn to for catharsis, right? right. Is it like, well, at least we're not as bad as these people? <laughs> I know. But shameless self-promotion there. Yes, my sister has a master's degree. As you will recall, that very last night, I was also up with you all night, more or less. That last night? I don't know. One of those nights. There was one night where I was definitely with you that night because you were trying to spread it out on the floor and you were panicked because you had to turn it in in like six hours and it all stopped making sense to you. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But, but you were just, you were there out of like guilt and obligation because I helped you through, what was it, finals or something? No, that was afterwards. Oh really? Yeah, because we, 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 I went back to school at the same time that you started your master's program and you were done within two years and it took me four. Oh. A little less than four, three and a half. My shameless self-promotion. But you're right. I was just there to make the coffee. I didn't help or do anything. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis is great. Um, all the actors were great, at least enough to hold their own. Anybody stick out to you as not as not uh, not doing their job? No. No. Well, I mean, even the brother, who is supposed to be all weak and, like, you know, he's kind of feeble and you know the faux brother. Uh huh. Even his performance, I felt like was great in contrast to Daniel Plainview's character. I agree. Again, there was a lot coming into this movie that we were unsure of. What the relationship, what the real story was between Eli and Paul, who were the same person, dressed the same, looked the same, sounded the same. Mm -hmm. um, the question of whether or not, uh, you know, how it is that Daniel, of all people, came to care for this kid when there are lots of other people around that Derek or whatever we're calling the uh, original oil well. Um you would seem like he'd be the last person who would want to take on the kid, except for the fact that he needed a pretty face to sell to help him buy land or whatever. But when he, when uh, Henry shows up, obviously you're in, immediately skeptical. Uh, Daniel Playview's intensely rich, very private, um, antisocial, and then this guy shows up and he's supposed to be embraced. Now, to Henry's credit, he didn't want anything, and I sincerely believe he didn't want anything. I think he just saw an opportunity, not for riches, but to inhabit the role of somebody who could get close to somebody powerful in a way that he could sustain himself. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to work. I don't think that he ever intended to rob him or anything, but still, our skepticism kind of filled in those blanks, and so I think we were always a little bit worried about him. And I think that he played it pretty straight across the board in terms of being able to allay our fears or whatever. He wasn't a menacing person. And even his deception was, I think, innocent enough. But it was basically a switch that flipped in Plainview's mind, right? You're my brother. I'm going to let you in on the horrible things I feel about the world. When you're not my brother, you're on the other side of that fence really, really quick, and it's cold, and I'm going to shoot you in the head. <laughs> right? Yes, I agree. Everybody good, did, a, did a great job acting. I kind of came away from this viewing thinking that There Will Be Blood is kind of a perfect movie. It's almost a perfect movie, yeah. Uh, I, I, in particular, not just the acting and the stuff that we can hold on to technically, but the way it looked also was great. I think that nobody was shiny in this movie. Everybody was pretty grungy 
Everybody was down in the dirt. And even in the best of circumstances where people are flourishing and they're rich, they're still out in the dirt. And uh, everything looked picture perfect to me. And maybe deceptively small in scale, you get some lumber and you build a derrick. But they also set that bitch on fire into the night. Right. You know, Brian was like, um, he got all into this like romantic American notion where he was like, that's what it was like back then. You know, you rolled up your sleeves and you did something. And if you worked real hard, you could become a success. He like totally bought into like frontier American dream. Yeah, I have to say that had to hold some appeal to me too. Maybe it's a dude thing. But even HM, after the fact, said that he, because of what his dad or faux dad or whatever taught him that he loved he needed to get back out there that he loved being in the fields and working with his hands and this was the kid that more or less grew up in total privilege right right once Plainview was fabulously wealthy still he wanted to break away from his dad and be out in nature uh so speaking of that leads me to my one complaint about this film and that is the transition from hw kid to hw adult Right. There was no way to ease us into that transition. We have two different, completely different actors, two vastly different ages and a different, at least in terms of his um, two different states of Daniel Playview. You know, the, there's the play, like frontier state and then there's this opulent mansion state coming into that new environment with this new actor is really jarring. And I don't know how uh, P.T. Anderson could have better managed that transition. I don't. I think that what you're speaking to is is resistance of H.W., who was basically ageless in this movie. This this movie spans a bit of time where Plainview comes to prominence in terms of success, and then he sends his kid away. And when Plainview, when H.W. comes back, he looks exactly the same, and you have no idea how long he's been away when he sends him away by train to the school for the deaf. Or whatever, and then all of a sudden he's adult. And as we discussed uh, in another review, I always have trouble identifying so closely with a character, uh, a single actor, and then having to change that up. And we did it at the end, but I think that it was worth it because of the jump uh, for the Plainview character. He had gotten to his Howard Hughes stage by then, where when he finally got enough money to get away from everybody, as he said, then he was fully free to be his ultimate crazy, right? Where he's shooting guns he's in the like, house and berating his, his son and, uh, and hurting his son deliberately with the fact that he wasn't his biological son out of the control of HV, HW entirely, right? If there was a failing there, if anything, it was Plainview's failing. But <clears throat> the transition to the adult HW only served to have him leave the house on his own and to establish where the Plainview character was to reintroduce the Eli character where we saw where he was and then hilarity ensues. <laughs> so it was close enough to the end of the film that it wasn't super jarring. Um, I don't like necessarily the adult HW and it's a little bit jarring for me, but for the passage of time, I think it worked fairly enough. I think it might've been more of a cheat if we had just never followed him again and never saw that character as an adult. If he had gotten a telegram or something saying that his kid was going to be his competition drilling in Mexico. No, it wouldn't have been as compelling. Russell Russell Harvard's performance does does lend something to the film, and he stands up against Daniel Day Lewis in a scene, even if they are speaking via interpreter. Uh, you're talking about the the adult HW, yeah, a really deaf in real life. Deaf in real life, 
so I think his performance really lends something to the film. It's just it's just hard to make that transition, especially when Paul Dano as Eli hasn't also hasn't changed much. You know, when they reunite, um, there does you just said that there you didn't feel like there was an arc for Daniel Plainview in terms of his character development or in terms of his maybe his emotional state but he does seem he does he is in full evolved crazy at the end yeah no i think he was a rotten onion from the start and we peel away those layers of civility until we get down to basically who he really is right and when he gets away from everybody he's free to he doesn't have to he's not beholden to anyone right we haven't really talked about the story the adaptation no, I think the sim- themes of the symbolism in There Will Be Blood, the themes are pretty apparent, right? Uh, oil for blood, the hard scrabble, fierce competition and strat- strategies of securing land, um, one-upping the major the oil companies who he views as kind of all the ills of society, um, having to do, having to live by his wits and his wits alone. So you're saying that P.T. Anderson adapted The Essence of Oil by Upton Sinclair? Almost literally, because uh, Oil is a very long book. I uh, Unfortunately, a lot of it in my memory is now eclipsed by the, uh, by the movie. But yeah, he basically took the first 150 pages and used it as sort of a writing exercise, and it evolved into something much bigger. But uh, to say that it's based on oil is, is uh, not exactly accurate. Inspired by. So I'm halfway through Oil right now. And I'm wondering if... There will be blood? Does it end like there will be blood? Uh, does it end with discord in the family? The answer is, it, it, well, does it end like there will be blood? The movie is a definite and resounding no. But it's its own thing. Well, their relationship is pretty amicable. Bunny, the HW character, mm-hmm. goes through his whole like Bolshevik phase and like is a young idealist in contrast to his like hard scrabble dad. But I think that the Ross character, the dad character who became Plainview in the movie isn't really, um, he doesn't really start out with the Jack Nicholson crazies. No. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't expect a dramatic turn into, into madness and murder and deception. Okay. So um, I mean, I so much I wanted to talk about, about this film. Yeah. I think that in the same way that uh, that's very effective in Boogie Nights and certainly in Magnolia, I think that P.T. Anderson's roving camera adds a lot. I mean, I'm sure it's hard to dolly across, you know, scrubland or whatever, but it seems like his camera is almost in always in motion. And when it's not, we can see the motion in Daniel Day-Lewis's face when we're in extreme close-up and everything is writhing under the surface. But I think that this his directorial style pt anderson's directorial style really uh, works well in this movie it adds a lot to the drama and dynamics of an otherwise boring looking movie possibly like all drab and right there's not a lot of opulence until we get to 1927 but before that he's sort of restless in his filmmaking and the way that i think the plain view character is that i think is really effective no more Dana D. Lewis. No, but he said that before. He disappeared, and Martin Scorsese in 2002 or 2000 or whenever they started filming Gangs of New York went looking for him and found him in the back room of some master cobbler in Italy making shoes. He's a weird guy. So maybe one day, unexpectedly, he'll pop up again. But every time he acts, people like Dana D. Lewis is back. Dana D. Lewis, he's acting in a movie. And whether or not it lives up to expectation, I don't know. Where's James Cameron been for the last 10 years? He's been toiling on Avatars 2, 3, 4, and 5. 
what is Daniel Day-Lewis doing now? I don't know. Maybe it has nothing to do whatsoever with acting. But when he comes back, if he ever does, we'll welcome him. There Will Be Blood is an important movie to me. It uh, It's one of those movies I can never take. When, it, you know, when my DVD collection gets a bit unwieldy, I can never take it back to mom's house. I need to have it on hand in one form or another. Um, it's a totally rating for me, for sure. Uh, it may have a few flaws here and there. But not every, this movie's not for everyone. It's not happy. Not for wusses? Not for wusses, but maybe also for wusses because you should totally see this movie because it's awesome. If this isn't your kind of movie, this is a movie that you should suck it up and watch because it's awesome. I think it existed perfectly in a weird uh, uh, galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago uh, of 2007 when movies were better. Uh, trivia. The Coen brothers and Josh Brolin as... Llewellyn Moss are stomping around Texas. Maybe he was hunting or whatever, or looking for the last man standing in the in the aftermath of the OK Corral scene in, in uh, No Country for Old Men. And the shot was ruined by this huge plume of smoke over the hill. And so they get to hop in the vans and they go and check out what it is. And P.T. Anderson and crew are lighting the Derrick on fire. And there will be blood in Marfa, Texas, just over the hill. No way. Yeah, two movies would go on to compete at the Academy Awards and No Country for Old Men, rightfully, took home Best Picture. But they existed in this weird space where everybody's making good movies. Frankly, they're all like dude-centric, man-in-the-woods, man-in-the-dirt kind of movies. No women in these movies. Yeah. No Yeah. No country for no women. <laughs> um, there will be no women. But a, great, but a great year for movies and... Just something that I don't think we'll ever see. It was like this weird confluence, like the perfect storm uh, once in our lifetime. Don't be all old and like, don't be all old and like, things will never be as great as they were in the golden age of cinema. Yeah, I'm aging myself because this is where I diverge from all modern. Like I gave up on on popular music a long time ago. (laughs) Me too. And I just, I just constantly go back to Counting Crows and Ben Folds. Yeah. We should review a brand new movie though next. What do you think? Let's do it. Um, a totally rating from Wes, a good rating from Iris. No surprise there. This is our chat on There Will Be Blood. Any final thoughts, Wes? And there was. There was blood. There was blood. There wasn't as much blood, though, as maybe one might have thought with the title. Can you imagine going into this movie after the fact, uh, when you didn't see it in the theaters, 13 years after the fact, where all you know about Jerry Maguire is you had me at hello with no context, and you can walk into this movie. Well, what do you know about this movie before it? Uh, I know... I drink your milkshake. I I have a straw and I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. (laughs) Um, Thank you for supporting uh, our podcast or whatever movies. Um, We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 818-835-0473 or hit us up on email or whatever movies at gmail.com. This was our movie favorite. There will be blood and... um, We'll look forward to doing some more of these favorites coming up. Thanks, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast.
Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.